Our gospel reading this morning is from John chapter 12, verses 12 through 19. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. The word of the Lord. We pray. Father, this morning we we come again to your word and we confess that there's many things that we have listened to um, this week that we've sometimes just listened to the lies in our own head, um, that we've looked other places for truth, but this morning we come back to your word and we confess that it alone is true and we need to hear it. And so we pray this morning that you would allow us to hear it. We pray that your spirit would work among us so that we might believe. Um, We pray that through it, um, we might be changed. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, somebody kind of surprising, or at least surprising to me, has been in the news a lot in the last week. Um, It's Mr. Rogers. Have you noticed this? Mr. Rogers has kind of been popping up in the news. Now, Mr. Rogers... Passed away, I think, about 15 years ago. Um, But recently, I think just a few days ago, there was a commemorative stamp of Mr. Rogers that was put out. And this summer is a documentary um, that's being released about the life of Mr. Rogers. And then in the fall, is a movie is being shot um, starring Tom Hanks as Mr. Rogers. So Mr. Rogers is getting a lot of attention. Um, these last few days, and it is sort of surprising because when you look at Mr. Rogers, you would think, how did he ever end up in the news in the first place? I mean, he's so, like, kind of frail and meek and kind of such a gentle person, and he's really unassuming, and but in his meekness and his gentleness, if you start looking at his life, and I think this is why he draws attention, is that he was actually really radical. In his meekness and gentleness, he was actually really radical. Um, why, why was he radical? I mean, one of the reasons why is that he just simply took children seriously. He actually listened to them. He actually realized that they had a lot of fears and 
he thought, well, maybe we should actually take those fears seriously and maybe we should actually address them. And so sometimes he would do them in sort of silly ways, like he would write songs about the fact that your body is actually too big to go down the drain in the bathtub. I've never been afraid of that, but apparently it was a problem at one time, and so he wrote a song about it. But then maybe in the next episode, he would talk about war, or he would talk about death, or he would talk about disease, or race, or loneliness, that he simply took children seriously. And in the the trailer for this documentary that's coming out, one woman said this, she said, you know, if you take all the, good, all the things that make good television and you do the opposite, you have Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. It's like low, like low production value is, a, is like a, I mean, it was very low production value. She said, you know, um, the set was really simple and the star of the show was highly unlikely. And yet, towards the end of his life, he received a a Lifetime Achievement Award on the Daytime Emmys. And you kind of imagine this man in the midst of those who might be at the Daytime Emmys, and a journalist, it caught their attention, and they wrote these words about his acceptance speech. Listen to this. Mr. Rogers went on stage to accept the award, and there in front of all the soap opera stars and the talk show hosts, he made his small bow, and he said into the microphone, All of us have special ones who have loved us into being. Would you just take along with me 10 seconds to think of the people who have helped you become who you are? 10 seconds of silence. Then he lifted his wrist, he looked at the audience, he looked at his watch, and he said, I'll watch the time. There was at first a small whoop from the crowd, a giddy, strangled hiccup of laughter as people realized he wasn't kidding. That Mr. Rogers was not some convenient eunuch, but rather a man, an authority figure who actually expected them to do what he asked. And so they did. One second, two seconds, three seconds. And now the jaws clenched and the bosoms heaved and the mascara ran and the tears fell upon the beglittered gathering like rain leaking down a crystal chandelier. And Mr. Rogers finally looked up from his watch and said softly, May God be with you to all of his vanquished children. A seemingly simple man who actually possessed quite a lot of power. He didn't need and he didn't want really the cheers of the crowd. And his message was really simple in his own words. Love is at the root of everything. And it's at the root of all relationships, either its presence or its lack of presence. Some of you may, may or may not know he was actually trained and ordained as a Presbyterian minister, that he wasn't making this stuff up. We see Jesus today. We see Jesus coming in to Jerusalem riding on a donkey, and if there was ever an unlikely king. Wasn't it Jesus? I mean, maybe we've grown accustomed to his title, that he is king of kings and he's lord of lords, but just think about Jesus for a minute, that he comes from this obscure and unimportant place. He doesn't follow many of the 
um, accepted and expected cultural, social, or even religious norms of his day. He doesn't pay homage to those that he's expected to pay homage to, but he pays incredible attention to those that many think he should ignore. He lets children come and sit with him. He takes them into his arms And he says that to such as these belongs the kingdom of heaven. And then in the very next minute, he has a theological discussion with a biblical expert. He weeps over the tomb of his friend. And then in the very next moment, he raises him from the dead. He is undeniably meek. And yet he speaks with absolute clarity and absolute authority. When hordes of sick people come to be healed, he goes off to pray. And when a sick woman touches his garment, she's healed. His disciples, as we're told, even in this passage, they didn't understand what was going on until after he was glorified. Jesus is incredibly misunderstood, and yet Jesus has nothing at all to prove. And here's the thing. Each of us is born longing for a king. I mean, you may have never put it that way, right? But we're born longing for a king who can come and dispel our fears, who can make right what has been so wrong. I mean, if you get to the root of some of our favorite stories, this is what they're always about, that there is one who is coming, who is going to make things better, who is going to make things right again, who is going to be, bring peace where there's chaos. He's going to bring restoration where there's disorder. But there's few here probably among us who would ever envision the king would look like this. Few would expect the king of kings to take the route that we celebrate this week. And I want us to think about that this week. Especially for those of us who've grown up with it, who's become sort of normal to us, that we celebrate One who is the King of kings and he is the Lord of lords. And at the beginning of this week, we watch the reason that he came and the path that he took. It's not exactly, isn't that exactly why he's so compelling and so astounding to us. In a world that we look at and where men and women clamor after power and after acclaim, And after glory, Jesus is the only one who is actually powerful enough to lay aside his glory for people who were against him, for people who rebelled against him. I want to think about the setting of this passage just for a minute this morning. It's it's been a while. If if we've been at Grace and Peace for a little while, then we've been in John. We were in John up until the fall, and I skipped over this passage intentionally so we could come back and look at it this morning. Um, But it's been a while since we've been in John. So let me say a few things about the setting of this passage. Um, The chapter prior to this is where Jesus raises his friend Lazarus from the dead. And John makes this kind of special connection the other gospel writers don't make. John makes a special connection to this. He tells us that this is the reason that the people have come out from Jerusalem to greet Jesus because the were apparently people who were eyewitnesses of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead have gone back into the city and so people have caught wind of this and they've come out 
to greet Jesus. And they see it as a sign of his power. And yet, judging from this same crowd, just a few days later, they didn't understand what this sign was actually about. And even as they yell for Jesus to be put to death, they didn't know what it meant that Jesus actually has power over death. And then at the beginning of this chapter, we find Jesus, after he raises Lazarus from the dead, he goes and has just a small little dinner party among friends. And Lazarus, who's just come out of a tomb, is there eating with Jesus. And Mary quietly goes to Jesus, and she anoints him with this expensive perfume, this oil. And there's no fanfare, and there's no ceremony, but what's going on is that Jesus knows that it is time, six days before Passover, his time has come, that, this, that the, the king is actually the lamb who has come to be slain. And so he, can, he comes into Jerusalem at the beginning of the week of Passover, and it's hard for us to envision like what a big deal this time was. I mean, an immense crowd would be gathered in Jerusalem. Sixty years after the death of Jesus, the Jewish historian Jerome um, said that there were 2.7 million people in Jerusalem for Passover. And we don't know how he counted that. But if, even if he was off by a few hundred thousand, it's an enormous crowd that has gathered in Jerusalem. And this crowd who's come out from Jerusalem to greet Jesus is quoting from Psalm 118, and they're saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then they've added on this last part, even the king of Israel. They're declaring that Jesus is king. And this word, Hosanna, is not a word. When's the last time you used the word Hosanna, right? Okay. Um, It's not a word we use every day. What does it mean? It literally means give us salvation. Give us salvation. It's, it's, a, it's really a kind of a command. Hosanna, give us salvation now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And they're waving palm branches. Why are they waving palm branches? Because it was a sign of victory. That here comes one, as one would maybe come back from battle victorious, that they would greet them with palm branches. And here comes Jesus into Jerusalem. And everyone greets him with palm branches. But... They're horribly misunderstood in their expectations of him. What did they expect of Jesus? I mean, what were, what were some of the fears that they were hoping that this Messiah would dispel? We can't get into the hearts and minds of all the people that, we, that were there, but collectively we get a sense of what they wanted. Is that they wanted for this Messiah, for this king to come to Israel because they were longing for a king who would bring them back to a place of prominence, who would drive away their oppressors and drive away their enemies. And they were thinking, well, maybe this one who raised someone from the dead, maybe the sign is that he is going to come and he is going to rule with power and he's going to rule with might. We don't have to be afraid anymore of the people who are putting us down. I mean, there's a sense in which even his disciples, I mean, John tells us in this passage, they didn't really get it until after he was glorified, but we have, you know, we we can watch them not getting it all along the way, that they're saying, you know, Jesus is, when we get to Jerusalem, they're going to kill me, and they're like, when we get there, can we, like, can we sit on your right and your left? And he's like, you don't, you're not listening to me. 
that Jesus, even it doesn't matter what he said, that their expectations of what it meant for him to be king were all cultural and they were all worldly and they just could not grasp what Jesus was coming to do. So why is this the king that we need then? Why, why is Jesus the king, the true king that actually drives away the things that we fear the most? Let's talk about that for a minute because John intentionally chooses this passage from Zechariah chapter 9, and he quotes it to us. But John actually, you heard it read earlier in the service, John actually changes the wording a little bit. A lot of New Testament writers do this when they quote the Old Testament. Um, John says, instead of rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, he says, fear not, O daughter of Zion. Fear not, here is your king. Why is this a king that dispels our fears? Let me ask that question. Maybe first, we have to ask the question, what is it that we fear? What what is it this morning that you're afraid of? What is it that you think you need a king to take away? You know, the, the dirty secret is that all of us are afraid. Um... If you just follow someone around for a little while on an average day, you will see that much of what they do is because they're afraid. That all of us are afraid, that some of us are really afraid um, that we're going to be found out. You ever have that feeling? Somebody's actually going to see me for what I really am, and so I better do a dang good job of making sure that what they see is what I want them to see, that we live in fear that somebody might actually see what's going on, like, in here, right? That some of us might be, we might be afraid that, um, we're just afraid of messing up. We're afraid of not being perfect. Maybe we're conditioned to think that we were supposed to be. And so we work ourselves to the literal bone trying to make sure that everything is perfectly in place, that we look right, that we eat right, that our homes look perfect, that everything is perfectly in place. Why? Because we're, we're afraid. Some of us maybe are afraid of, of something different. Maybe we're afraid that some of the pain that we feel right now, some of the grief that we feel right now, some of the suffering that we feel right now, some of the things that we see in our own lives, but also around us, we're afraid that it's never going to go away. You can think for a minute, maybe I should do a Mr. Rogers 10 seconds of silence. Think about your own fear. How does Jesus meet you there? Why, why is this the king that you need, even if he's not the king that you want? You see, this crowd thought he was the king that they wanted, but they found out a few days later that he wasn't. And so those cheers turned into cries of crucify him. Why is Jesus the king we need? Let me, let me just point to four really quick things. And the first one is this. It's his intentionality. It's his intentionality. What do I mean by that? I mean, it's easy to, it's all over this passage in a way. It's all over the Gospels 
It's all over the entire scope of Scripture, but we forget about it, that Jesus knew exactly what he was doing and why he was doing it. And Jesus, from the moment he was born, was marching towards his death. We understand that, that Jesus, from the moment he was born, was on a death march, that this is why he comes into Jerusalem, that Jesus knows that the people that are praising him today are going to be crucifying him in a few days, that Jesus is highly aware of that because Jesus as king knows exactly what we need. And what we need, we're told in Scripture, is that the wages of our sin is death. And so next Sunday, we're going to get, the next time maybe I'll see many of you is going to be Easter, and we're going to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, that Jesus rose from the dead, but in between now and and Easter comes Good Friday. And at this point, this is where Jesus had his attention zoomed in on, that Jesus is intentional in what he's doing and where he's going, and Jesus says, nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. Jesus goes to the cross. He is intentional. Why does he do that? Because what we need, as much as I love and I hope that you love what Jesus says in the Gospels, and we love the philosophy and the teachings of Jesus in the Gospels, and we would do well to adhere to them and listen to them and conform to them, that Jesus knows what we need first and foremost before we're ever even going to hear them or follow them and listen to them is that what we need is not necessarily a self-help course. We need the perfect sacrifice. We need a substitute. We need a man to stand in our place who has never done anything wrong who has nothing to fear because if you look inside, there has never been a thought that has gone awry. There has never been a time when Jesus didn't perfectly love his father and perfectly love his neighbor and perfectly live in obedience. He's never broken a law. He's never had a wrong thought. And he comes in order to stand in your place. And so when he gets to Jerusalem, he has every right to ascend to a throne and to reign forever and ever. Instead, he ascends to a cross as our substitute. We need this substitute because at the heart of our worst fears really is our sin, is that we live in this world that is broken. What we long for more than anything is to actually be seen and to be forgiven And to be accepted. To take, Jesus comes to take this full condemnation of the sin that we deserve and to give us our righteousness instead. And friends, if we understand that, that drives away our fears. (laughs) Now we talk about it every week and we have to talk about it every week and we have to talk about it every day until the day that we die because it's too good to be true. I love the way this quote on the front of your bulletin, on the first page at least, that John Calvin puts it. He says, The benefit comes to us through Christ that freed from the tyranny of Satan, the yoke of sin being broken, guilt canceled, and death abolished. We freely boast, relying on the protection of our king, since they who are placed under his guardianship ought not to fear any danger. Not that we are free from fear, so long as we live in this world, but because confidence founded on Christ, rises superior to all fear.
his intentionality. Why is he the king that we need? Well, we, it's because of his humility. Um, kingly, like kingliness, what we think of as kingliness and humility, what we think of as somebody being at the top and having power and also being humble is not something that we are well acquainted with. And yet this is what Jesus is modeling for us, that the Lion of Judah comes as a lamb. He comes riding on a donkey. We cannot, in our finite minds, fathom the humiliation of the second person of the Trinity taking on flesh, being continually misunderstood, humbly receiving the sneers and threats and spit and beatings of the hordes of people that he actually came to save. The true king takes this downward road. This is what we watch this week. And it shouldn't be surprising to us because his road already started in a downward trajectory, that he comes down and he continues to go down, that he becomes obedient even to the point of death, even death on a cross. It's humility. But we also see, thirdly, we see his love. Love is the driving force of Jesus. Love is the driving force of Jesus. Jesus is love incarnate. When when Luke records the same incident, Jesus comes to the edge of Jerusalem and the people are already starting to cheer. And you know what Jesus does? He stops and he looks at Jerusalem and he begins to weep. It's the second time we see Jesus weep. He weeps at the death of his friend because what sin has done to this world is it has brought death into this world and he weeps because he knows what it will cost to reverse death and he looks at Jerusalem, the ones who are cheering for him and he knows that they know not what they do even at that moment and he weeps for them. Why does he weep? Because he loves them. He loves them. Have you ever done something for someone out of deep love knowing that their reaction to what you do would probably not be taken very well. That's what real love looks like a lot of times. Some of you who maybe have, are parents, maybe you know a little inkling of what that's like to do something out of love, knowing that it might not be received well. Jesus does this times infinity. But lastly, we see his power. His power that that brings peace, his intentionality, his humility, his love, they come together to create power. Jesus does ride into Jerusalem to do battle. He does. Jesus does ride into Jerusalem to engage in war, and it's war against the, the principalities and the powers of this world. It's not the war that the people wanted. It's not the one they expected, but it is the war that they needed. It might not be the war that you think you need someone to fight for you. He comes, Jesus comes to shatter the powers of sin and evil and death, and he comes to bring this word, peace. That I said it in my prayer earlier, and we forget that this is who Jesus is, that Jesus is the prince of peace, because when we look at this world and what sin has done to it, it has brought the opposite of peace in every corner of this world. And Jesus rides in and he says, the way for me to bring peace once again and to bring order once again means my death. 
and my resurrection so that I create this new kingdom and this new society and this new creation. But this is what Jesus is about. And so now, those of us who are connected to Jesus are freed from the tyranny of sin and death so that we now become ambassadors of his peace in this world. Ambassadors of this good news, Jesus is victorious. Jesus has conquered sin and death. Jesus is making all things new. And you know where he started? He started with me. And so we go out into the world and we realize that we have a job and we have someone that we can follow and we can look at Jesus and we can say, how do I bring peace right now? What does it look like for me to speak the words of Jesus into the situation where I am? Maybe that's just an argument with your spouse. Um, Maybe it's solutions to some of the bigger problems that we look at in our culture. You know, John is not arbitrarily or incidentally using Zechariah 9 when he talks about Jesus getting up on this donkey. That's the passage that he quotes from. That John is using it, I think, for a reason, because the people who would have been reading this later would have known what was going on in Zechariah chapter 9. I want to read, let me read you just a little bit of the context of it. And you can see what it means that his power has come to bring peace. He says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. And then he goes on to say this. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow shall be cut off and shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. And for you also, because the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Fear not, O daughter of Zion. Here comes your king. And the imagery that this king brings is the reversal and the cessation of wars. That this king, what he brings is the proclamation of peace to the very ends of the earth. He says to all the nations that this proclamation that he brings is is the blood of God's covenant that releases us from prison. Why is this the king that we need? Why is this the king that dispels our fears? Because this king simply came to do what none of us could do. That's why at the end of this week, as we make our way towards Good Friday, what we see is that Jesus goes to the cross alone, that nobody can go with Jesus. He goes alone and he goes for you. Friends, the Christian life is is not about us being great. It isn't primarily even about us in the way that we follow this king down the road that he goes, although we should. It's mostly about us knowing that he traveled this road for you. That he traveled it for you. Do you know that this morning? Have you meditated on that this week? If you haven't, it's okay. You can. You have time to. That Jesus accepted the praises of this crowd, knowing that they would turn into jeers in a matter of days. And what 
was, what was motivating Jesus to keep going? I can say this because it is true. It was you. For the joy that was set before him, that joy this morning was actually you. Do you believe that? That is where true power comes from. That's where our power comes from. It, it dispels our fears because if this king loves us in this way and this king is for us, then what can man, Paul says, do to us? What do we have left to be afraid of? It sets us free to live. You know, maybe someone like Mr. Rogers got it right. He was gentle with children. He, was, he listened to their fears. He was able to be meek and humble because he was tapping into a power that maybe was a lot greater. A lot greater than himself. And what that freedom to do was to actually show love. And maybe that's what it means for you and I this week. That with our spheres dispelled, we are loved because we are loved by this king. We are eternally seen and accepted and forgiven because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross and in the resurrection that we don't have to be afraid anymore, that we don't have to live in guilt anymore, that we don't have to continually shame ourselves anymore, that we are now set free to actually love. Let me pray. Father, we praise you this morning for your son Jesus. We praise you for his character and his person and his work. We thank you that his work is finished as he pronounced on the cross for those of us who believe in him. And Father, I pray um, that this wouldn't be something that we set aside and think about, well, it means that we have now entrance into heaven and it has no impact now on how we live. Father, may it never be that we say that. But I pray as we watch Jesus this week take this road toward the cross for us, that it would change us, that we wouldn't want to be more like our king. And we ask this in his name. Amen.